Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or you can go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. And after you've listened in, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating and a review. In this episode, we look at the continuing crisis of corruption in the government, Mel and how the conservative media has gone into bat for a disgraced cardinal, and the fine art of lying in politics. Is the government spinning far too much for its own good? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, cosmopolitan, centre-fold and glamorous cat burglar. Parliament is almost over for this term of office, and that means that there's no more scrutiny on the government before the next election, which is expected within the next three months. There's been a second wave of retirements from the government. This time, we're saying goodbye to Julie Bishop, Christopher Pine, Steve Chobo, and there are rumours of more to follow. The sinking ship analogy keeps cropping up. The scandals keep coming for the government, and it's almost like there's an eye-rolling moment that comes up every single day. There are so many that it's hard to know where to begin. We've had Hello World, Paladin, the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, Australian Federal Police and Michaelia Cash, the stacking of the boards. Is this normal behaviour for a government at this point in the electoral cycle? Clearly not. For a government that is convinced it's going to win, or at least it says it's convinced it's going to win, they're not doing very much about that. The Hello World scandal, which compromised our US ambassador, Joe Hockey, who was said by Andrew Burns to have owed him a favour. What diplomat owes favours and grubby favours like that. The free trip for Matthias Corman was just bad, bad idea, even if it was genuine that he they'd forgotten to charge him. And you can't get a plane ticket under normal circumstances without the money being cleared. And this is smart business sense. Uh, even if that had happened, it was still not a good look. And also, Andrew Burns is the treasurer of the federal Liberal Party, so it's not like this whole issue just stops at one particular free ticket issue. Andrew Burns is the treasurer of the federal Liberal Party, and Joe Hockey also has $1 million in shares in the Hello World company. It's incredible. The planet has uh, tipped on its access from Menzies and Deacon and Fraser and all of the leaders of the Liberal Party who have since passed on spinning in their grave. It's a difficult set of events to comprehend, but Hello World has actually received $3 billion in contracts from the federal government for air travel services to government MPs and affiliated people, and it actually replaced a multi-provider panel in 2014. When you have a multi-provider panel, that means that there's a number of different companies that are competing for those particular services, and that was all scrapped by the Liberal government in 2014 and replaced by just the one. Now, my sense of economics is not that great, but I'd say that if you've got one provider replacing a whole lot of providers, that probably reduces competition and prices would probably go up. It's the usual scam, the privatised green slip in New South Wales, electricity, the whole lot. Prices go down very quickly in the short term, and then they shoot up all worse than coals same type of thing. I think it's fair to say that Hello World were and have received a massive windfall and we're looking at further windfall to come. The issue is is that now they've lost probably more than half the population who won't deal with them. 
will government contracts be enough to keep them afloat? You'd think so with that kind of money, but then again, you never know. So that took up the media space for, for a couple of days, the hello world. And, and again, it's that whole head shaking from the electorate. Like once the information about these issues comes out, people just don't believe it. They just think, well, how on earth can this actually happen? It didn't stop there. There was the Paladin company as well. They, they provided security services in Australian immigration detention centres in Nauru and Manus Island. Now, aside from the issues related to the whole idea of immigration detention, Paladin is a company. They were awarded a $423 million contract. Now, it was a select non-competitive tender. Select tender just means that a government department can go to a particular company and say, this is what we want done. Here's the money. Go ahead and do it. Normally, you would do it for smaller contracts contracts, say $10,000, maybe $20,000. But $423 million, this is a sizable amount. And the cash trail in this contract is very hard to follow. Some of the locals are saying on these islands are saying that Paladin does very little on those islands. And it's hard for them to see where the money has been spent. Certainly not on wages. Paladin staff went on strike because they were being underpaid. It's suggested, I think confirmed, but suddenly suggested that Peter Dutton's sister was a senior person in Paladin, just opening up more of the grubby, unsubtle corruption of the government. Even if she was the most qualified person for the job, it's still not a good look. It's just been insane, and I don't know how you clean it up. Well, I guess a future Corruption Commission could be looking at some of those factors. I did talk about the $423 million contract for Paladin, there's also another one which was it was actually handed over almost a year ago now that and that's the four hundred and forty four million dollars that was given to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. Now in that case it wasn't even a tender. The Great Barrier Reef Foundation didn't even ask for the money. There was a recent Senate report that severely admonished the government for its poor behaviour on this. They instructed that the Great Barrier Reef Foundation should return any unspent money back to the Commonwealth government. So within that report, it was a bipartisan committee that prepared the report. They were completely astonished that the government could actually consider this. Amounts of $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, even $50,000. Sometimes it is possible for government departments to just hand out that money to a suitable tenderer. But in this case, $444 million, that's absolutely astronomical. And not appropriate it's not as if it's a group of scientists or biologists or reef specialists. It's a group of your typical nobodies who happen to know the right person. Everywhere you go, there are unqualified people who are there because it looks good on their CV, but who haven't achieved anything because they can't, because they don't know what they're doing. I don't know what the Great Barrier Reef Foundation was supposed to achieve. Nobody does. And also, we've had the stacking of the boards quite recently. Christian Porter, he's the Attorney General, he recently made 34 new appointments. They've all been Liberal Party people. So they're either former Liberal Party MPs, Liberal Party members, or affiliates of the Liberal Party. In some cases, it's people that have missed out on pre-selection, such as Jane Bell. She missed out on the pre-selection in the seat of Higgins. She's been appointed to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. For these tribunals, you need good quality people, you need qualified people, and I'm sure that in most cases they are, but they're all from the Liberal Party. Both sides, of course, reward favours of friends, but there's a way of doing it. 
you make sure your decision-making is absolutely watertight. So you don't give George Brandis, for example, the UK High Commissionership just because he's pouting that he, he missed out on something. He's not appropriate. He hasn't impressed in the role. He hasn't blown it as badly as some people were expecting, let's be fair, but he's not an outstanding High Commissioner by any standard, let alone Joe Hockey, who has been less successful. Christian Porter's appointment defeats me. There is a hierarchy in the law that is not properly understood by those outside the law. It's a almost unsaid rules of where you stand as a lawyer. And judges can come from anywhere, but if you get appointed to a judiciary position, you have a certain amount of experience, a certain amount of knowledge, a certain amount of qualification, but you also have your place in the hierarchy. And for Christian Porter, who is a lawyer, to subvert this seems to me to be insane. There have been quite a few appointments that have been made recently, and in the final six months of a term, that's what governments usually do. In the election cycle and in coming up to an election, you're never too sure whether a party is going to win or lose. So, of course, they stack their boards with like-minded people from their own political party. But this extreme level of stacking of the boards, it just indicates that the Liberal National Party itself just doesn't think that it's got any chance of winning the next election at all. You put in as many of your friends as possible in the Fair Work Commission, Administrative Appeals Tribunal, you put in as many high commissioners all around the world. The idea is that those people are in there for some time. In the lead-up to the 2013 election, the incumbent Labor government did appoint Steve Brax, the former Victorian Premier, to the position of Consul General in New York. But Labor lost that election, and as soon as Julie Bishop became the Foreign Minister, she sacked Steve Brax and put in one of her own. So the precedent has been set. I'd say that if Labor wins the next election, if there's any selections that they feel are unwarranted or they were too close to the election, they'll probably undo them. It's already happened before, so they'll try it again. And I venture to suggest with, with more justification, uh, Steve Brax was a more appropriate candidate than Joe Hockey ever was. As far as I know, Steve Brax never held down a disastrous budget that, that didn't even pass. Joe Hockey couldn't get one of his three budgets through. And quite rightly too they were terrible the government has gone i think a bit feral knowing or suspecting it's going to lose we know that since 2007 the rules have changed so even though every indication suggests a government massive loss well the evidence is there and it has been there for for some time the government has actually lost 164 consecutive polls since August 2016, and that's not a that's not a good sign for a government at the end of the term. And it needs to have an election before May 2019. Been behind in the polls for a long, long time, and more recently, the news poll shows that they're actually slipping behind even further. Now it's still within the margin of error, but for a long, long time, news poll has been 53% to the ALP, 47 to the LNP on a two-party preferred basis. But the most recent one slipped away down to 46% for the LNP, which means 54% for the Labor Party. Swings are never consistent when it comes to election day, but if that was consistent on election day, that would mean that the ALP would hold around 90 seats and the LNP would hold around 50 seats. So that's that's what you call a wipeout. There's a suggestion going around that Matthias Cormann 
will be stepping down after the election. He may not need to. <laughs> he may be stepped down. And I know that he's a senator in a very high position, but it's looking dire. 154 losses, 50 news poll in a row. A news poll tends to skew because of the demographics it uses. Uh, it tends to skew towards conservative, the more conservative side of things. Uh, the really interesting thing is that people aren't going to the Australian Conservatives or One Nation either, which is where you might think that disaffected Liberal voters or some disaffected Liberal voters might go. They're not going to the Greens either. Uh, you'd think that those on the left of the Liberal Party might go to the Greens. Those on the right of the Liberal Party might go to the One Nation or the Conservatives. They don't seem to be going there. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, George Pell's final parting of the waves and how the conservative media has come to the rescue. biggest news of the week wasn't even the most recent news. George Pell was found guilty of child sexual assault. The verdict was handed down in December last year, but due to strict media suppression laws, it couldn't be reported until a second trial of child sexual abuse against George Pell was completed. That trial was dropped last week by the public prosecutor, which meant the suppression of the first case was lifted. The acts committed by Pell are atrocious. Child sexual assault is a serious crime and usually results in a lifetime of psychological trauma for victims, future mental health problems, drug abuse and high suicide rates. These are not the vanilla crimes that Pallas Barrister suggested. But what has been intriguing has been the parting of the waves along political lines. The tin ears from the many supporters of George Pell, and that includes John Howard, Tony Abbott, Andrew Bolt, Jared Henderson, Joe Hildebrandt, Craig Kelly, Frank Brennan... The Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, said that we shouldn't be too quick to judge George Pell. Well, it's a little bit too late for that because he's already been tried by a jury in a court of law and he's been found guilty. The same people mostly who complain about the four-star hotels that the jails are, that we have this soft judiciary that lets criminals off, are now saying that the judiciary is too hard and the jail is a terrible, terrible punishment. Joe Hildebrand didn't quite support George Pell. He said that he was guilty of other things as well. Um, certainly, I don't understand John Howard writing a reference after it had come down. Tony Abbott, it's not something that surprised me. I think that's the best way. Neither Andrew Bolt, most of them. John Howard is normally not that tin-eared. And I know there's a lot of people who can't stand John Howard. is normally not that tin-eared. The Archbishop of Adelaide, who claimed that Catholic schools didn't need to have the states working with children's check, that they should sort it out themselves, was perhaps the most tinnied of the lot of them in a, in a week of clangers. Well, it is understandable that people show their support for someone that's been convicted, irrespective of how heinous that crime might be. It's actually part of the Catholic and the Christian ethos to show support for those that have sinned. On one level, that's understood, but there's, there just seems to be a lot more at play here. And 
My interest in it was that it has split along conservative lines and conservative lines within the media. So not only have they come out to support Pell, they've actually gone one step further and claimed his innocence. So it's almost like they've completely trashed the adjudication from the from the court of law. But one other aspect is that George Pell was the guest of honour at the 2013 70th anniversary of the Institute of Public Affairs. That event was emceed by Andrew Bolt. Also in attendance were Rupert Murdoch, Gina Reinhart, Tony Abbott, Hugh Morgan. These are rich and powerful people. So whatever happened to the Christian ethos of the meek inheriting the world? One thing that isn't widely known but is true is that Rupert Murdoch is a Catholic knight. He's not Catholic. So this is a very unusual honour. And papal knighthoods are usually given out in service of the church. The conservative split seems to be along those who work for or are associated with Murdoch and News Corp and those who aren't. Ray Hadley was highly critical of Tony Abbott, who's a regular guest on his show apparently, and John Howard for coming out in support of George Pell, who is now a convicted pedophile. And Ray Hadley's certainly not a dangerous leftist or even a moderate leftist. He's, you know, very much on the right. So I, I think that's a split that a lot of people in the media haven't quite noticed. I haven't seen any non-News Corp affiliated conservative come out in favour or come out in support of Pell. Now, there is also the doctrine of the split between the church and the state. This goes back to the Reformation. There's a political basis to it. It's there to protect both the church and the state. So it was 1791 in the United States Constitution. It's a, it's a hallmark of most democracies. Now, the, the split is there for a reason. But I've, I noticed recently that the WA Liberals, they've been saying that politics is quiet on religion and that needs to change. And I thought that it was a good idea to actually separate the church and the state. This is the main reason why we're having these issues today with Pell and the support of various political leaders and the media, that they're trying to dilute that link between the church and the state. It's not a good thing. The Australian Constitution was written by some people who had a Christian faith, but who understood that that Christian faith was a personal thing that shouldn't intrude on public life, except maybe in the terms of how you shape your ethical approaches to policy. Of course, Alfred Deakin was a spiritualist, not Christian at all. He thought that we had evolved past Christianity into something a bit higher. Bob Hawke declared Australia a secular state in 1983 or 84 we have freedom of religion you can have any spiritual belief you like provided it doesn't undermine the law of the country so if child sacrifice for example is a part of your religion that will never be allowed and rightly so of course dietary restrictions or worship restrictions that don't impinge on the law are more than welcome to be practiced and you can even have opinions on the rightness and wrongness of other of other religions this is how it should be we should not turn towards australia being a more christian country or a more muslim country or a more jewish country or a more hindu country because that's not how a democracy functions democracy has room for everybody and yes you can shape your political beliefs on your spiritual beliefs and as, a, as an ethical and a, as a moral structure, but you cannot make your religion superior to anybody else's, and this is as it should be. So the conviction of George Pell, and we do have to point out that he has been convicted by a court of law, but he, as is his legal right, he has put in 
an appeal and that has to be accepted by the Court of Appeal. So it's still got a little way to go here, but essentially, as we speak, he's a convicted criminal and convicted pedophile. But this is actually a big moment for the Catholic Church in Australia, and it follows the sexual scandals that have appeared in almost every country where the Catholic Church operates. There's been major investigations in the United States, in Ireland, there's been sexual slavery of nuns in France, abuse of young children pretty much all around the world. Yet the conservative media, and it's mainly the media that's been run by Rupert Murdoch, it's almost like they want us to dismiss all of this. And and I can't help feeling that their whole attack has been based along political lines. So there's still, it's almost like they haven't forgiven the former Prime Minister, Julie Gillard, for setting up the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse in 2012. I think that George Pell's conviction is culmination. It's almost the end point of that Royal Commission process. And the Conservative media has never forgiven Julia Gillard for instigating this commission. The hatred these men, mostly, have for Julia Gillard is palpable. I don't think she was one of the greatest prime ministers we had. I think she was very good. And I think that had she been allowed to do more, she may well have become a great prime minister. I think that she is an important prime minister, not just because she's a woman, although that is a a big part of it, but she was a very successful prime minister in terms of her legislative program, in terms of what she was able to get done. And if she'd done nothing else, the Royal Commission was absolutely vital into opening up some of the dirty little secrets of Australian society. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the fine art of lying and truth in politics. Politics is based on the fine art of lying or evading the truth. There's a number of reasons for this. It's to keep opponents at bay, it's to play games with the media. Being truthful invites too many problems, too many questions and makes the life of a politician far too difficult. But there's an art to the lie in politics. It's usually well disguised and based on spurious evidence or a made-up fact produced by a friendly think tank. But that's almost all gone. We've gone. We've come to a stage in politics where the outright lie has become the friend of the idiot king. Donald Trump in the US, Nigel Farage in the UK during the Brexit campaign, and increasingly in Australian politics, barefaced lies coming from the mouth of Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. Trust in politics, trust in the banks, trust in the clergy has fallen. The public understands that politicians stretch the truth and that's part of their job but have we almost reached the point where the scale of the lie is no longer an issue anymore certainly brexit there were exaggerations on one side the eu isn't a perfect organization that never got anything wrong and there were outright lies on the other side you'll get complete control back of the legislative process we'll be able to trade with the rest of the world Britain never lost complete control of its legislative process and they already trade with the rest of the world. Donald Trump, CNN, calculated that he told over 4,000 lies since he started. And how many of those were just to millennia? We're not sure. Every time he opens his mouth, 
a lie comes out. Now, of course, in the past, politicians might deliberately obfuscate. And of course, sometimes things change so quickly that what seemed to be the truth actually turned out not to be the truth because things had changed or a new piece of information had come through. Generally, the politicians had to cop it on the chin that that was a lie and, you know, they had to work their way around it. I don't know that anybody's countered the lies of Peter Dutton regarding asylum seekers. Certainly the idea that asylum seekers who come to Australia will kick Australians off waiting lists was a lie. The asylum seekers would go into emergency care, whereas Australians on hospital waiting lists for so-called non-essential procedures. So there's a lie there. All the children are off Nauru, except for those who aren't. There's a lie there. Josh Frydenberg, we're still trying to work out whether he just doesn't understand economics or whether he tells bald-faced lies. I think it's more of the former than the latter, to be, to be fair to him. More recently, Josh Frydenberg was admonished by Treasury for continuously saying that under Labor's negative gearing policy that housing prices would fall and rents would go up. They've actually said that that's not their advice at all. And even though he was he was presented with those facts and presented with the information from Treasury, he just kept on ignoring what they what they suggested and kept on repeating his own factually incorrect information. Just just because Treasury said it, you shouldn't you shouldn't take it at face value. But Treasury also tend to be able to back up most of their claims with very well researched facts, figures, and analysis. We're we're in a very strange period of politics. I also think, and again, the shadowy figure of, or the not-so-shadowy figure of Rupert Murdoch is a part of this, because the papers print this, and in Australia where Murdoch owns 90% of, of the media, the papers print this without analysis and with very little criticism. Now, there was one exchange which caught my interest a couple of weeks ago, and that was between Barry Cassidy from the Insiders Program and the Minister for Energy, Angus Taylor. We'll just have a listen to that. Emissions are up over the last five years, not down. Well, well, actually, the latest greenhouse gas report that came out last week says yes. that emissions are down by over over one percent in the electricity sector, which no, is, no, no, they're, which they're, is in my area. They're up by one percent no, no, over a no, year. No, 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 you're wrong, Barry. And a report came out last week saying they are coming down. And uh, this, is the energy, down, this is the Energy Department report. The, 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 no, this is the greenhouse gas inventory report. Yes, they are coming down. Uh, and the department rightly believes they're going to continue to go down. Uh, and the result of this is we will reach not just our Kyoto targets, and we're still in the Kyoto period, we will reach our Paris targets. Uh, are you talking about total, total emissions across total the economy? Emissions. Total emissions are coming down they're right They're up now. by 0.9% Barry, over the, the year. In the last quarter, they've come down yes, 1.5%. Not, not, not a quarter. Over the year, they're, they're up by 0.9% and they have increased every year for the last five years. Well, well, they are coming down right now, Barry. And if we go right back, when we got into government... That's not what the we, figures say. Well, I'm telling you what the <laughs> figures were from the report that came out last week and you should have a, have a read of that report because one4 percent down, 3.5% down in the electricity You're relying sector. on one but quarter we, where for the well, last well, five hang, years hang, the figures have shown an increase. Hang on, hang on Barry. Let's go back and look at the extended period of time when we got into government. In that exchange, Angus Taylor, he was referring to the quarterly update to the National Greenhouse Inventory. I've looked through this document and I must say it actually seems like a very politicised report and it's very, very spurious evidence. It, it is a government 
agency, of course, but to me it seems politicised like so many other things prepared by this government. He claimed that emissions had decreased across the board. Now, this is not true at all. From the report, it said that emission levels had gone down by 1.4% relative to the previous quarter on a seasonally adjusted and weather normalised basis. Now, who knows what that could mean, but that's within the electricity sector based over the past decade. So what he's done is the classic political process where you cherry pick a small skerrick of information, then you magnify that to make it seem like it's applying to absolutely everything. So Angus Taylor got that wrong, but he was persistent. He kept on calling out that emissions have, have gone down, and that's the one thing that the Environment Minister, Melissa Price, has been saying, and that's one thing that Scott Morrison has been saying as well, even though it's completely wrong. It's to try and destabilise the discussion. Two things spring to mind. I forget who it was who said, if you, people will believe a lie if you say it long enough and loud enough. I want to say it was Goebbels. I don't think that's quite true, but that will do. And uh, the hapless George Costanza from Seinfeld. It's not a lie if you truly believe it. And I, I have a sense we're being run by a bunch of George Costanzas who want to be Goebbels. Well, the classic media strategy is to have your three talking points and stick to them. Whenever the conversation steers away from that, you always drag it back to those three points. And and typically in the past, that's been three strategic points that magnify and amplify those political points that you want to emphasise. But to me, it seems like this new strategy also includes inserting egregious lies as part of the mix. And I think that's where the problem is. It comes back to bite you. I don't understand what the logic is. I know that they're trying to hold on to power at all costs. And of course, as, as political analysts, we understand this. But there comes a point where you just have to either give up, realise you're going to lose, shut up and and do the work of government till the election, call the early election and go into caretaker mode even, or decide this strategy isn't working, start telling the truth, and maybe people will come around, oh, actually they told us the truth, things are dire, but since they've turned around, maybe they will turn things around, which is unlikely. There is that old adage about lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics, but it's almost like this has been taken to another level where there are well-disguised lies or there are hysterical lies. My feeling is the government ministers are going into hysterics. That's where we have Peter Dutton coming out and saying that refugees are stealing our hospital beds. And, you know, next he'll be accusing refugees and asylum seekers of stealing our yoghurt and putting the empty container back in the fridge. That's the level that it's at. We have Scott Morrison saying that we'll meet our targets in a canter. That's the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, targets by 2030. Now, aside from... The images of horses and things like that is it's quite a weird thing to say and it's also factually incorrect. And more recently, we've had the Deputy Prime Minister, who's also the National Party leader, Michael McCormack, saying that if Labor's 45% emissions reduction target is met by 2030, there won't be any more nighttime cricket or nighttime football. Now, this is up there with $100 roasts and the idea of Wyala completely disappearing off the map that Barnaby Joyce used to go on about. It's absolutely incorrect and it's obviously ridiculous. When you have everyone on Twitter, everyone on Facebook, everyone on Reddit, and it's not even the opposition leading this stuff, it's people saying, wait, no, that's wrong. And then some of the information that comes through is equally wrong. Some of it is absolutely right. Some of it seems to be right, but it's not fully right. You can't get away with the stuff you could get away with when information was controlled by a few organisations. Information is no longer controlled. 
anything you say can be checked in real time, debunked in real time, and used against you in real time. For the political light of work, there needs to be an element of believability to it. And there isn't much believability in the government. Perhaps their strategy is to go over the top and hope no one will notice, although they will, and that they haven't got that much to lose. It's a continual uh, random scattershot, let's hope something sticks. I'm not sure that they'll be able to turn around 150 polls in six or eight polls left till the election. At this point, I think they're trying to save as many as they can rather than win. And it's at a state level too. Gladys Berejiklian, week after next, faces the voters in New South Wales. It, we've had all kinds of lies thrown up in state politics in, in New South Wales. Michael Daly took on Alan Jones's membership of the SCG Trust. I think it's underestimated just how unpopular Alan Jones is outside of his core demographic. And he lied about even saying that, oh, if we don't knock the stadiums down, We'll have a Hillsborough incident here. And one of the other lies about the stadiums was, um, oh, we missed out on getting a musical because the stadiums weren't good enough. And as everyone pointed out, those stadiums aren't used for musicals. So <laughs> what are we talking about here? Moving on to New South Wales politics, because as you mentioned, they do have a, an election coming up soon. There was the leaders' debate last Friday night between Michael Daly, the Labor leader, and Gladys Berejiklian, the Premier of New South Wales. And during that 30-minute uh, leaders' debate, Gladys Berejiklian accused Michael Daly of lying no less than 16 times. And it was almost like in the post-debate assessment, a lot of people were saying, well, she, she just went on about lying far too many times. Like, we understand that politicians tell lies. Like, tell us something different. Tell us something new. It was almost like there wasn't enough flow to the whole debate it was an incredibly disruptive process but to continuously accuse your opponent of lying when in fact you're doing it yourself is counterproductive ask the people of Haberfield or of Erskineville where the West Connects is going about the truth-telling capabilities of the current New South Wales Liberal Party Sydney is not impressed there's work everywhere it takes at least 20 minutes longer to get anywhere than it should. The roads are starting to become even more congested now. And I just don't think they understood this. And they couldn't manage it well enough that it would be finished two years before the election and that people might forget that this isn't normal. Her whole thing on the Newcastle Herald journalist, where he asked a question about the Newcastle Street. And it could have been handled so much easier and so much better by just saying, we understand that there's been problems, but now it's all open up. We believe business is going to thrive again. And thank you all for your patience and you know maybe kick in a little bit of money for a Hunter Street rejuvenation fund or something. Instead, she basically said, oh, the Newcastle Herald are always criticising me, ignore them. That seems to be the behaviour of a government that's under severe pressure they were probably expecting to romp home in this state election and things have not turned out the way that they're expecting them to. Most of the polls are predicting that it will be a hung parliament and that will replicate the result from the 1991 New South Wales election. So sure enough, we'll find out on March the 23rd and we'll be presenting a special episode of New Politics on the Monday after the New South Wales election. That's it for this New Politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. 
We produce the program on a regular basis and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all and it's goodbye to our listeners. And I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.